Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program... Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called it a drum major instinct. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be a servant. Talking about being a servant and leadership. Now a new effort called the Drum Major Coalition is launching. It's a vision from Dr. King's son, Martin III, and wife, Andrea. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Plus, we'll get a preview from them regarding plans for next year, when 60 years marks the historic march on Washington. Also... Why not? It's Jimi Hendrix Day here on Closer Look. This month marks 52 years ago. Hendrix died at the age of 27. Now, we're going to revisit a conversation with the only surviving musician to have regularly played with Hendrix. It was bass player Billy Cox. I heard this guitar playing in this practice room, and the window was up about maybe three inches. I went in. It's kind of like the Pied Piper. I introduced myself to him. He said, well, my name is Jimmy Hendrix, and I'm just learning to play the guitar. I said, well, I used to play bass. He said, we can check out one of those basses. They got the electric bass, and we got together and started jamming, and the rest is history. Ah, the rest is history. Stay with us. All that's just ahead. But first this, a major step towards redeveloping the 20 acres over in southwest Atlanta. That's right on the west side trail of the Beltline. Well, you know it's called the Murphy Crossing Site. It's in the Adair Park neighborhood, and it also crosses the Martyr Red and Gold Lines. So now officials with Atlanta Beltline have said they have a developer in mind. It's Cul-de-Sac Incorporated. In a statement, Atlanta Beltline President CEO Clyde Hicks cited, quote, the revitalization of Murphy Crossing Crossing has long been a part of the vision of Atlanta Beltline and represents many of the aspirations we have for sustainable, equitable redevelopment along our 22-mile corridor. Now, he also went on to say, we believe the cul-de-sac team, which includes members of one of the very neighborhoods this project will impact, will be great stewards of the community's desires and great partners to our Atlanta Beltline team, close quote. And we'll have more about this next week on Closer Look. Two companies are on the clock after the state awarded them licenses to produce medical cannabis oil for thousands of Georgians. Now they've been waiting to legally access it. As we hear from WABE politics reporter Raul Bali, he says this has been a long road to this point. Medical cannabis oil for certain medical conditions has been legal to possess in Georgia for seven years, but there's been no legal way to buy it here. 
Then, three years ago, new state legislation allowed Georgia's Access to Medical Cannabis Commission to license companies to grow marijuana in-state and produce low-THC oil. For the past year, the program has been tied up in legal protests by companies who did not get awarded one of six production licenses. Those protests were rejected by a state administrative judge last week. Then on Wednesday, the commission awarded two licenses for large-scale facilities in South Georgia. Those companies have one year to be operational. The commission can still award the remaining four licenses for smaller production facilities, WABE is told that those are still tied up in pending litigation. The commission also has to set rules for the licensed companies to be able to set up stores to sell low-THC oil for the more than 42,000 patients and caregivers on the state's registry. The registry includes patients needing the oil for ALS, MS, severe autism, and a list of other conditions. Raul Bally, WABE News. In other news, in 2020, we know election systems in Georgia and around the country were tested like never before. Now, a new national task force on election crisis is preparing for what could come this fall, as we hear from WABE's Sam Greenglass. Two years ago, election officials had to manage voting during a pandemic and deal with efforts to undermine trust in elections. Jennifer Morrell with the Elections Group firm says some veteran election officials have since quit. And many of those left have had to devote energy to defending the integrity of the last election while they try to plan for the next one. My fear is that an innocent mistake or even something more normal like long lines or the delayed opening of a polling location or a longer than expected time to report initial results on election night will somehow be used to further undermine the work of these election professionals. Morrell says voters and officials are having to navigate new voting laws, sometimes with fewer resources. She's also concerned about efforts by some groups to recruit election deniers to work the polls. She says sharing reliable information about how voting works will be crucial to combat election disinformation. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says the state is spending more than $30 million in a second round of grant funding to combat homelessness and housing insecurity. The money is supporting projects that will create new affordable housing or preserve existing properties. So yesterday, eight different organizations qualified for the awards. It was announced yesterday some will receive as much as $5 million. That's on top of more than $60 million in housing grants announced last month. Some of the projects will be Atlanta-based, including $3 million for the Atlanta Beltline Partnership and $2 million for the West Side Future Fund. The money comes from the American Rescue Plan Congress passed last year. Now, Democrats have attacked Kemp for touting his spending of federal money when he has opposed some of the pandemic relief spending bills in the past. The DeKalb School Board has adopted a process for handling complaints should schools teach certain, quote, divisive concepts. Now, a new state law bans teaching one race is superior to another and that the U.S. is a fundamentally racist country. Most board members oppose the law and former chair Marshall Orson suggested adopting a one line statement instead. Our policy is essentially what the state board has said is the policy, that we might use the term divisive concepts uh, in our policy. I don't really want to give a lot of air and attention to it. But on the advice of legal counsel, the board adopted a more thorough policy. Recently, the Clark County School Board in Athens voted not to adopt a policy complying with the new law. It's unclear what the legal ramifications of the vote could be.
And finally, a pair of longtime film executives have chosen Atlanta to launch a new professional networking platform that will connect TV and movie crews with productions. Ron Howard. I remember him as little Opie and then Richie Cunningham and fellow industry giant Brian Grazer, who won an Oscar for their work on A Beautiful Mind and co-founded Image Entertainment. Well, they're behind the project. It's called Impact. They describe it as a LinkedIn meets Slack for the entertainment industry. If you're not familiar with Slack, just ask your nearest millennial. They'll know. And I am prepared for the emails. But anyway, the company says it will make it easier for productions to find, quote, talented Available crew members while allowing members to showcase their work and find opportunities. And we will have more with that company coming up on a future edition of Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from... The Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And you're listening to Closer Look from WABE here in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. You know, a few years ago, 2018 to be exact, we curated the ATL 68 series, examining not only the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but how the mission of the civil rights movement progressed 50 years after his death. In one of the many conversations on the program, I spoke with Dr. Robert Franklin, from Mo- former Morehouse College president and now with Emory University's Candler School of Theology. He talked about Dr. King's moral leadership and how it was still a br- blueprint for modern activists. I like to define moral leaders as women and men who live with integrity, courage, and imagination as they serve the common good and as they inspire and invite others to join them. That's what makes them moral leaders. And that's also at the core of a new effort now called the Drum Major Coalition. It's launching. It's a vision from Dr. King's son, Martin III, and his wife, Andrea. Plus, when we speak with them, we'll also get a preview regarding plans for next year. When Can we believe it? 60 years marks the historic March on Washington. So John, joining me now with more are the Kings. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Let's begin with that uh, that drum major instinct. And Mr. King, I'll start with you. So many people take different reflections or interpretations from so many of your father's speeches and sermons. But when you think about what the core of the message is and the drum major, what goes through your mind? Well, first of all, Dad did the, the sermon, the drum major uh, instinct, and talked about how we all have that instinct. We want to lead the parade. Mm-hmm but sometimes it needs to be harnessed. And then he talked about, in that whole uh, sermon, he talked about his own, he did his own eulogy saying, if I, if, I don't wanna be remembered <clears throat> as you know, a person who 
accomplished all these accolades with awards and, and honors, the Nobel Prize. I want to be remembered as a drum major for justice, for peace, mm-hmm. for righteousness, for equity. Um, he wanted to eradicate what he called well, the triple evils of poverty, racism, and violence. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we haven't made progress enough in those areas. And that mission is still uh, available. We believe through those values of peace, justice, and equity, we can ultimately eradicate uh, those triple evils to make our society better. Uh, so uh, that's a mouthful. No, no, say that's, that's perfect. That's fine. Mrs. King, what about you? Well, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is that um, that was the very last sermon that Martin Luther King Jr. gave here in Atlanta at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but think about the fact that when he was assassinated, that was February 4th, um, two months later, when Coretta Scott King was putting together his funeral service um, and she thought about and looked through all of the vast speeches and writings and um, anything that could be played, she pulled that speech. She didn't pull I Have a Dream as much as we all love that speech. She didn't pull the mountaintop speech. She didn't play the the, um, letter from the Birmingham jail. And in a very real sense, as Martin said, his father eulogized himself because that speech was played at his sermon. It was the last thing that that played. And so he eulogized himself. And what we believe is that that call is all of our pursuit, Mm -hmm. not just Martin and I, but our society in general. Mrs. King, let me stay with you, because when we talk about, I guess, what we would call modern day activists or or modern day leadership for those grassroots or, or even, you know, national organizations, do you think there is still a message being lost in terms of what that leader looks like in terms of being a servant as well as being a leader? And often Dr. King and others are used as that blueprint for what leadership looks like in this work, whether it's civil rights, human rights, but in that space. Do you think in 2022 that sometimes leadership gets or how someone should lead in those organizations gets a little bit lost and sometimes the leader gets more of the hype than the actual work? I think that in some sense that that really has not changed that much, even from the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that some people felt that way um, throughout the movement and and probably even before that. Um, I myself um and very blessed that I worked for um, Reverend C.T. Vivian mm-hmm. um, for many years and Ann Brayton, who Martin's father mentioned um, in the letter from the Birmingham jail as a white Southerner that was um, in the fight for freedom and justice for black folk. And these are two names that even to this day, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people discovered um, C.T. Vivian when he died on the same day as John Lewis, but I can't think of anyone else that literally every day of his life um, lived those principles mm-hmm. from the 60s up to the day that he died. And and he was really about, let, let's just get in, let's do the work, you know, the way in which he lived all areas of his life um, and the, the amount and what he contributed to our society um, in our democracy, still that story is um, has yet to be told. And so I say that to say that to to really understand and have worked with people that have changed the course of our history, this is not um, theoretical 
to me mm-hmm. or to us, this is something that that we know. And so how can then we find those people, the, the groups that are on the ground every day now that are fighting for our democracy in the mm-hmm. last couple of years, there's been a lot of talk about frontline workers. Mm-hmm. Well, the groups that we have identified and that we're funding through the drum major coalition are on the front lines of our democracy. Well, Mr. King, let me ask you that. Based on, on, on what Mrs. King just said, how are you all able to identify, and you are talking about as you're all site black and brown leaders who are leading these, these efforts, how are you all identifying them? Well, first of all, we identified um, a vast, um, well, I won't say vast, the selection committee of eight or nine uh, persons or organizations and mm-hmm. persons who actually have been involved on the front lines. Uh, groups that we identified like vote, Black Voters Matter, mm-hmm. um, like um, Down Home North Carolina. Uh, there are some Latino and Hispanic uh, mm-hmm. organizations as well. And so the selection committee, as I said, it's, it's actually really seven mm-hmm. uh, entities, seven organizations, had been working with groups. And in fact, we worked when Senator Warnock and Senator Ossoff were first elected uh, in November, from November to the runoff, which was January, and the date, of course, we remember was January 5th mm-hmm. of 2021. And we worked to raise money for the campaigns. And those organizations on the ground, those 20 or so in, in Georgia, helped to bring the vote out to make the difference. So we would elect our first African-American United States Senator and our first Jewish Senator. Now we've identified since then, that campaign was called Win Both Seats. Mm -hmm. Um, We transitioned to give us the ballot and ultimately the drum major coalition where we identified or working on identifying a large number of high net worth individuals or individuals who just wanna give. Our goal is to raise $100 million over the next four years uh, to reinvest in those 40 organizations. And we were looking at three categories. Mm -hmm. Um, I heard earlier in your program, you were talking about here in Georgia and how the um, repressive laws that um, have been passed were going to impact voters. And so one of the first categories that we looked at are what are the states that have passed these laws? Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, you know, we worked quite heavily um, to pass federal voting rights legislation. When that didn't happen, it became quite evident that this had to be on the ground state by state battle. Mm-hmm. So we looked at what states had had passed these laws. Um, and then the second and and that they could be um, key swing states was first category. The second category, what what are states that have the potentiality from moving from being at least from red to purple with the right funding, such as Mississippi. Let me ask and the you. Third, go mm-hmm. ahead. No, go ahead. Finish. My apologies. Go ahead. And the third and the smallest category would be what are those groups that are national um, organizations like um, Black Voters Matters um, and the um, Black Ministers Pact that are national, but that are on the ground in all of these key communities. So under the dr- drum major coalition, are you all going out, getting the funding and, and reaching out to other entities to have them fund these organizations? Are you all going to raise the money basically yourselves for this initiative? Yep. That's what's happening. Yeah, we're yes. Ra- yes, we're raising money our- ourselves directly. And every it, it's 100% of it is being s- split through these 40 organizations equally. How will you 
keep, I hate to use the word, how will you keep track, but what metrics do you have in place to ensure that these organizations will do what they've cited, you've cited them to do, you've, you've, you've vetted them, these are the organizations that you all feel are grassroots, you know, and, and look, that's not to say that you think somebody will do something nefarious with the, the funding, but what mechanism do you have in place to just ensure folks are doing what they're supposed to be doing? Well, first and foremost, um, each of the organizations, we had a very rigorous process um, selection progress um, from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So they had to be in good standing um, legally, you know, financially, um, they've had a good record. None of these groups are startups. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of these groups have had a, a good record in what they are doing and also in the impact in their community. And in a certain sense, going back to your first qu- um, question, we were also looking for groups that are on the ground, but doing things in an innovative way. Um, you know, like figuring out, you know, what needs to be done and doing things and even really opening up what in some ways people think of when they think of the civil rights movement in mm-hmm. 2022. Um, but because that we know that they are gold standard, we know that, you know, they've been vetted um, and it wasn't just the two of us because if it were up to us, mm-hmm. we would want to fund everybody. So we had a, <laughs> a very um, good team with us to make sure that all the um, T's were crossed and I's were dotted. Um, But we also feel very firmly in the sense of giving the groups freedom. Mm -hmm. Um, So all of the funds are unrestricted Mm -hmm. because we also feel that these groups have proven their effectiveness and that they should also have the freedom to utilize the funds and the agility in the way that they best see fit for their community. Mr. King. And also, they, they, they sent us, we, we get reports, yeah. mm-hmm. and we're also in the process of, of filming, uh, doing some documentation about each organization mm-hmm. and what they're doing. For example, one organization most recently was able to get 55,000 uh, persons registered to be able to vote who are felons. Mm-hmm. So there are some organizations that specifically work with felons. As you know, in Florida, the governor just arrested uh, 30 or so people who he said voted fraudulently. Mm-hmm. He has a police commission to go around and identify folks. These people were sent voting cards from the counties that they live in. They didn't bet themselves. That's mm-hmm. the county's responsibility. The governor, in an egregious way, went into targeted, arrested one man in his underwear, uh, had you know SWAT going there. Mm-hmm. We've got to counter all of this. Now, this organization was in North Carolina that actually was able to get 55,000 former felons registered and ready to vote. And these are also organizations that they're not merely utilizing lip service to creating the beloved community or mm-hmm. you know, lip service to brotherhood and sisterhood. These are groups that are, that, that's their guiding philosophy and that they are working every day to make this a fair and just and equitable society for all of us. You know, we've just got about a minute, maybe two minutes left, but I want to get your thoughts on this because with everything you talked about, the importance of these organizations through your lens and looking forward to next year, 60 years since the March on Washington. And I'll start with you, Mrs. King. What are you all hoping that these organizations are still embodying as you all go back to Washington 60 years later? What will the message be or that you think the message should be? The message would be that these organizations, but all of us, all of us are heirs to the the King legacy. I, I really believe that when Dr. King 
started speaking about his dream and he and he mentioned his four children. Certainly he was talking about Yolanda, Martin, Bernice and Dexter, but I think also in a larger sense, he was talking about each and every one of us and that we are all heirs to the legacy, but it really is up to each one of us to utilize our voice and our power and that we all can together lean in and realize the dream. Mr. King, I'll give you the last word. And I, and I would say the, the, fine, the, the other part is we are seeing everything. We've always used rights to expand for the rights of people. The United States Supreme Court for the first time has turned the clock back and they're talking about doing even more. It's a very frightening proposition. This is why voting matters. This is why democracy matters. We're starting, we're operating as if we're not a democracy because the majority believes something else. But the court believed that we needed to address uh, you know, reproductive rights. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be talking about all these issues that affect people and certainly those that affect poor people because dad's dream was about expansion and lifting up people. All right. Martin Luther King III, his wife, Andrea Waters King. Thank you both for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. Now, earlier in that segment that we just had with the Kings, we played a clip with Dr. Robert Franklin on moral leadership. And that was part of our ATL 68 series from 2018. Let's begin here. Prior to Dr. King's death, did you have any idea about your life's blueprint, what you wanted to do? Prior to his death, I would say not really. I grew up in a household of uh, Southern Uh, migrants to the south side of Chicago. And there was all of this rich, uh, inspirational, uh, you can be anything, do work hard, be smart, uh, study in school, and so on. And so I internalized all those virtues. But I was, frankly, a young teenager, aimless, uh, enjoying the music of the 60s, part of the coming of age of that uh, rather tumultuous time. And of course, by then, already we had seen the assassination of great leaders Mm -hmm. like uh, President John F. Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And real concern about how uh, good and righteous leaders were vulnerable in our democracy. Did you fear that Dr. King would be assassinated? I did, particularly, this grew more acute after uh, Malcolm X's assassination in 1965, and uh, then certainly other leaders, lesser known figures. And I began to realize that uh, there was something wrong in, you know, with the kind of soul of a society that could not tolerate diversity and difference of opinion in a respectful, peaceful way. And Dr. King is promoting nonviolence and promoting empathy among groups and ethnic racial groups and socioeconomic classes. And I feared that as he began to speak out more and more on the war, that uh, this unpopular position would, has, would place him in a vulnerable position. The soul of, of a society, it often makes you think about what the soul of our society is today, doesn't it? Mm, oh, it does. It does. In fact, intelligent uh, citizens should ask that question every morning. Who are we now as an American people? Where are we headed? That's the title of Dr. King's last book, mm-hmm. as you know. Where do we go from here? Chaos or community? Mm-hmm. 
Take me back to April 4th, 1968, and when you heard Dr. King had been killed. I was a sophomore in high school, Morgan Park High School in Chicago. Morgan and Park? Yes, they yes. They got a good football team Indeed, there. <laughs> indeed, you know. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, Central Time, I was uh, headed home after band practice and uh, heard the news, actually, from someone A bus driver was passing by and shouted this out to some passers-by. I overheard it and was stunned. I was sort of midway between home and school. So I went, for some reason, decided to walk back to school and uh, knew that I could get information quickly there. And it's interesting that uh, I must have lingered a half hour or so, saw or heard radio reports at that point, then made my long walk home. By then, an hour, I suppose, an hour and a half after King's, Dr. King's death, I could look and in the distance, you know, Chicago's prairie land, mm-hmm. flat. I could almost see downtown from my, I, I was, uh, you know, 25 miles uh, south of that. But I could begin to see smoke rising in, in places around the city. And I thought, this is going to be a very difficult night. So I rushed home and, of course, watched the unfortunate events unfold uh, on TV. Did you at any point consider going out, being part of whatever was taking place? Uh, part of me wanted to be out there where the action was, but um, my, uh, my parents made it very clear this is going to be a dangerous time. As, they, as we tuned into that evening news and heard the, uh, the news, newscasters and, and the Walter Cronkites and others reporting on what was happening around America, we knew that it was probably safer to be indoors. And that's where we were for the next couple of days. And then five days later, two mules bring Dr. King's casket from Ebenezer to Morehouse College. You're watching this on television. Mm. What's going through your mind? I was struck by, first of all, watching the ceremony at uh, Ebenezer, all of the VIPs and dignitaries. And to see, you know, people who I admired and and, uh, was a fan of Sammy Davis Jr. and Harry Belafonte, but Charlton Heston, actors like Marlon Brando, Mm -hmm. um, the vice president of the United States, Hubert Humphrey, the, uh, you know, all these extraordinary people on the scene. Uh, And it made me realize the world has really lost a great man, and these people admired Dr. King, even if they couldn't publicly support him. You're watching this. Then-President Emeritus Dr. Benjamin Mays is utilizing his former student, mm-hmm. Dr. King. So does your blueprint then start to take shape a little bit in your mind? Yeah, I, I like the way you're building on this blueprint uh, metaphor from King's speech because it, it certainly did at that point. I'm being deeply imprinted uh, as I'm watching these events and realizing that uh, young Martin Luther King Jr., a graduate of Morehouse College in Atlanta, a, um, a, a minister, an educator, a public servant who is serving others and in the course of that uh, sacrifice is gunned down. And now the world pauses in the presence of a great leader. So I began to feel this gentle tug inside. And as I watched that march from Ebenezer over to Morehouse College's campus, and then to see what I would characterize as the regal elegance and beauty 
of Morehouse students in their dark suits and mm-hmm. starched white shirts and ties serving as ushers. And the tens of thousands of people that gathered there in what we now call the Centennial Yard at mm-hmm. Morehouse. The faculties of Spelman and Morris Brown and Atlanta University and Clark and, and Morehouse gathered and ITC. It was just, just extraordinary. And I knew at that moment I was going to apply to Morehouse. You became a Morehouse man, class 19, can I say it? You can. Class 1975. Yeah, people know I'm an old guy. (laughs) (laughs) You talked about Dr. King as a minister, as an educator, as a public servant. Dr. Benjamin Mays, you, Mm. minister, Mm. educator, public servant, you became president Mm -hmm. of your alma mater. On this life's journey, how much influence has it been with the spirit and the words of Mm. not just Dr. King, but Dr. Mays. Yeah, I'm glad you frame it that way because it really is this extraordinary relationship between a teacher and a student. And even as we talk about what happened in uh, these tragic events of Parkland, Florida, we see remarkable teachers and remarkable students emerging. All across Metro Atlanta today, there are remarkable teachers in every single school out there, and they don't realize, perhaps, that they're nurturing and teaching young women and men who will become remarkable students. I remember coming over to Morehouse College, I think it was 2011, to talk Mm -hmm. to you about then the plans for the the statute in D.C. And I remember behind your desk on the wall, Mm. it's a picture of Dr. Mays, and you said, you know, I come in every day and I look right at him. (laughs) (laughs) I look and I said, Doc, how how are we doing today? And uh, help us to to stay on course, to in fact follow the, the blueprint. And uh, Dr. May, studying his life, really inspired me to develop what I talked about at Morehouse as the five wells. Mm -hmm. And all of the students who've been there um, during my years and since can recite to you the five wells of the Morehouse man to be Mm well-read, well-spoken, well-traveled, well-dressed, and well-balanced. And, you know, initially I delivered that speech a year after being at Morehouse. I wasn't sure it was going to go over. Parents all loved it. They, In fact, when I mentioned well-dressed and oh, yeah. pulling up your pants, <laughs> they cheered. I got a standing O, but the guy sat there and looked at me out of the corner of their eyes. But about three weeks after that speech, I saw a student walk across campus wearing a T-shirt with the five wells, well-read, well-spoken, well-traveled, well-dressed, well-balanced, on the T-shirt. And someone said to me, you passed the T-shirt test, <laughs> the litmus test of a lasting vision. So, again, that I, I attribute to Dr. Mays and what he tried to do for young students like Martin Luther King, who came to Morehouse at the tender age of 15. 15. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we were just privileged to serve some of America's best and brightest young men And that legacy continues. The voice you hear is Dr. Robert Franklin, professor in moral leadership at Emory University and also former Morehouse College president as our ATL 68 series continues. You know, Dr. Franklin, you've authored so many pieces on leadership and and moral leadership. So tell me, what are some of the tenets of moral leadership here? I like to define moral leaders as women and men who live with integrity, courage and imagination as they serve the common good, and as they inspire and invite others to join them. That's what makes them moral leaders. 
And I'm working on a book now that mm-hmm. gets at this. But those three virtues are really privilege, integrity, courage, and moral imagination. Given the climate, the current climate of our nation, and of course, I know it's not lost on you. There are mm. a lot of tensions as it relates to race, mm. religion, immigration, some of the same things that were happening in yes. 1968. So with this young generation, how do you encourage these these tenets of moral leadership mm. when there's a climate that is tense, that's also filled with rage mm. and anger mm-hmm. because people have a differing views of opinions. How do you get that across to this generation? There was a tense standoff between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King in Birmingham in 63 and following. And Malcolm X was outraged that Dr. King would lead a movement that would put young men and women, church women, uh, children in the streets marching, and vicious dogs uh, were being unleashed upon them. And Malcolm X really denigrated Dr. King and talked about all of the Southern preachers who were uh, quiescent and accommodating. But Dr. King's reply was powerful. He says, I understand in each of us, whenever we observe injustice, there is something that calls, that, that triggers an indignation and outrage. It's okay to feel angry. But I choose to channel that anger and indignation into the posture of a disciplined restraint and a commitment to never dehumanizing my opponent. He said, don't even call them enemies. They are opponents, and we must never dehumanize them. And then he made an interesting claim. He said, it takes a strong man or woman not to hate, not to retaliate. That requires strength. He said, the weak person flies off the handle and retaliates. And he promoted a a posture of moral strength and endurance and resilience. It's hard to achieve and aspire to. But as I talk about this to the young men at Morehouse and as I speak to students today around the nation, certainly in classrooms at Candler School of Theology, they get it. And it's something they strain and grapple and wrestle with, but they want to grow into that posture. You have traveled around the globe. Mm. I know you spent time in India. Mm. How does all this help shape and then also continuing this moral leadership that you are, that you're teaching? Yes. Well, uh, it's certainly, uh, when I talk about being well-traveled and how important it is to listen and learn from other traditions. Uh, Remember, Rose, uh, Dr. King was a Christian, a Baptist, but his most important intellectual and spiritual influence was a Hindu, Gandhi. Gandhi. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it was uh, Howard Thurman who who taught King at Morehouse and was an inspiration. I had the privilege of getting to know uh, Howard Thurman, another Morehouse man from Daytona Beach, Florida. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was the first African-American leader to meet uh, with Gandhi face-to-face in uh, the late 1930s. And he returned and talked about that meeting. And here was young Martin Luther King sitting in the audience, encountering the fact that, as Mays put it in his eulogy of Dr. King, Gandhi confronted the British Empire through nonviolence, and he won. And Martin King was going to try to do the same. You brought a book with you today. It's a little worn and tattered, (laughs) but it serves its purpose. Tell Mm -hmm. me about it. This book, uh, Born to Rebel, is the autobiography of Benjamin Elijah Mays 
who uh, is an extraordinary leader, born in 1895. I note that that's the same year that Frederick Douglass died, Mm -hmm. and the same year that Booker T. Washington gave his famous speech right here in Piedmont Park. Mm -hmm. And he died, of course, in 1984. And so it was an extraordinary life, and uh, the, the, the city of Atlanta ought to know more about Benjamin Mays. You keep that book with you, close at hand? I do. I carry it. I read it from time to time. And, uh, you know, students of Morehouse and Emory and others know that they'll see this tattered copy, and occasionally I'll read a passage to just remind them of these classics. I want to end with a, a classic passage. You know this quote. Mm-hmm. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands in times of challenge and controversy. What does that mean for you? Wow. It means that each of us will be tested. But at the end of the day, the words of Rabbi Hillel and quoted by Maimonides that compel me as I think about the life of Martin King, think about the life of Benjamin Mays, that the world is equally balanced between good and evil, and your next act will tip the scale. One's blueprint for life, huh? Yes. Dr. Robert Franklin, James T. and Berta R. Laney, Professor in Moral Leadership at Emory University. Thank you for coming in and taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's a great pleasure to be with you again. And that is from our 2018 conversation with Dr. Robert Franklin from our award-winning ATL 68 series. By the way, you can still access all of these great conversations. Just hit the wabe.org slash ATL 68. And if it's not there, then do a search. We're back in a moment. This Closer Look, I'm Rose Scott. That song is Lover Man with the man on guitar, Jimi Hendrix. Now, back in 1970, the second Atlanta International Pop Festival took place in the Middle Georgia Raceway in Byron, Georgia. That was back in July 3rd through the 5th. Now, some of y'all probably saw Hendrix that day with the likes of others, such as B.B. King, Nauman Brothers Band, Grand Funk Railroad, Rare Earth. Some of y'all say you saw him, but you didn't. But knowing good and well, you weren't there, but... That's okay. Well, months later, we do know on September 18th of that year, Hendrick died at the age of 27. But someone who not only knew Jimi Hendrix, but played alongside him is Billy Cox, now the only surviving musician who regularly played with Hendrix. We spoke a few years ago when new Hendrix music was released. Billy Cox joins me now on the phone. Mr. Cox, it is a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Ms. Rose Scott. You know what? I remember reading a few years ago a quote you said, I look at my relationship with Jimi Hendrix as destiny. All right. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Tell me about the first time you you picked up the bass. Oh, I picked it up in high school. Wasn't that good. Oh, and, come on. Uh, you know, like we all, quite a few of us played in our high school bands or grade school bands, and we kind of gave it up. And all of a sudden, one day, I was coming from a theater at Fort Campbell, I was in the 101st Airborne Division, and uh, it was raining, and we all were running for cover, and I wound up on the doorstep of service club number one, at which time I heard this guitar playing in this practice room, and the window was up about maybe three inches. I went in. It's kind of like the Pied Piper. 
Uh. I introduced myself to him. He said, well, my name is Jimmy Hendrix, and I'm just learning to play the guitar. And I said, well, I used to play bass. He said, well, you can check out one of those basses. Uh, they got the electric bass if you turn in your ID card. And we got together and started jamming, jamming and the rest is history. So you, you just heard this music. I heard that music. You know, fate are the cards that you dealt at birth, but destiny is what you do with those cards. Amen, brother. Destiny was right there in front of my, my, my face. Let me ask you, my father used to say that you could always tell the great ones when you first meet them, when you first hear them. You know that there's something different. You know there's something special. Did you feel that way about Jimmy? Yes, ma'am. I knew it was, it was, a, it was, it was a, a destiny. I don't know what it was. It just drew, got, got us together. We formed a group. And we worked on post, and then I terminated my jump status to be a manager of a ser- the other service club, and uh, he was kind of like a ghost in his uh, uh, outfit. And so we would practice all day, every day, until we got uh, discharged. And uh, Vietnam was breaking out mighty hard, and I didn't know if I was going to be called, mm-hmm. but if I was called, so be it. But I just happened that we, we, we got away, bit the bullet on that deal. And then we got discharged. He got discharged a month before I did. And by that time, we were working in Clarksville. And uh, then we left Clarksville, came to Nashville, and I've been here ever since. I, these are where my roots are. Those are your roots. When you all decided that, hey, let's let's try to put a band together, let's make this work, how did that come about? I mean, did you all, did you, was it just you all knew during rehearsals, hey, we got something here, and we're just going to go out and play? Yes, we were jamming in that in that service club, and I said, well, we're doing pretty good because we were playing songs of that day, and it kind of just miraculously, we just had it together. And uh, we, we were kind of linked musically together for some strange reason. We got a drummer. In fact, I've gotten in touch with the drummer every now and then. He'll email me from time to time, and he got discharged before we did. But nevertheless, uh, the, the, the my destiny was right there in front of him. And I tell, tell my kids, the same thing, like I quoted earlier, fate are the cards you dealt at birth, but destiny is what you do with them. Then you apply grit, the power of passion and perseverance, and there's no way you can lose. Spoken like a true bass man. My father would say the same thing, he, and it's weird. I'm telling you, Mr. Cox, mm-hmm. he would always talk about perseverance and grit. That must be a bass player. That's a bass player thing. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this, because you mentioned your drummer. Was that Mitch Mitchell? Uh, no, it wasn't Mitch Mitch. Before Mitch, okay. Let's talk about the first time you all hit the stage and played, uh, you know, before a huge, a huge audience. What was that like? What was that song? You remember that first song you played? Uh, but, uh, yes, but before we hit, uh, we played at Bird High School's prom, and we did quite a few things. But the, the biggest gig I ever did, I finally joined him later on in the big time, mm-hmm. and the big, biggest gig we did was Woodstock. Now, let me ask you this, because Woodstock, there are so many stories about Woodstock, and, and you don't have enough time to tell me about Woodstock, but I will ask you this, just quite simply, what was it like back then? We came up, we spent the night right close by. In fact, we rehearsed for 30 days about 10 miles down the road, so we could hear all the stuff going on from Sly and all the groups. And finally, our day came, we spent the night close by, and we came to the back of the stage, and they helped us come up on, on the the platform, and we looked out and saw all these hundreds and thousands of people. Jimmy, in his infinite wisdom, well, well, uh, Mitch looked out and he says, whoa. Then I looked out and said, uh-oh. And then Jimmy said, he looked out and he said, hmm. And with his infinite wisdom, he said, 
look, these people are sending a lot of energy up to the stage. So what we'll do, we'll take that energy, utilize it, and send it back to them. And that's exactly what we did. We were supposed to be up there. Well, they didn't really give us specific time. But we stayed there on stage almost two hours. Mm-hmm. And then he struck out with the Star-Spangled Banner. Some unique thing. I don't know if you ever had, had a chance oh, yes. to that on the CD or on the, the wax, uh, on the LP. But I followed him for six notes, and then something said, Billy, you better lay out. Just, just chill. I'm fishing to happen here. And I stopped <laughs> playing. Man, he <laughs> made an, an incredible song that lives today. Bands, you have set lists. You know, you, you talk about Jimmy doing his thing, and you just kind of held back. Was that often the case when you all were out there because you never knew which way he was going to go, and you just had to kind of let him go, and you just tried to follow as, as if you could? Well, that's not true. We rehearsed day and night mm-hmm. and at hotels and at, down his flat and uh, uh, any place we had opportunity to practice after we did it all day, every day when we could do it at Perseverance again. And uh, that's how, and so we had everything together. But on a song like that, mm-hmm. I mean, there were no drums, there was nothing. Now I'm just, I'm just jumping in there with him, Star Spangled Banner, and that was one exception. But however, we had everything figured out, and it was, it was precise. Now, sometimes we didn't have a set list, but intuitively we knew what song he was going to play by the first couple notes he started off off playing. You know, Mr. Cockett. Cox, if you want to start an argument, you ask people, what's your favorite Hendrix jam? What's your favorite Hendrix song? I'm going to ask you as, as a fellow musician and friend of his, what's the one track, if there is one, that comes to mind that you think is really just displays his brilliance and the brilliance of the band? Because often sometimes people, I tell people, look, don't forget about the rest of the band now. These, these cats were tight. So yeah. is there a track out there that you think, look, this is who we were. This tells you who we were as a band. There are a couple of them out there, uh, more so the one called Freedom, because we're integrating a lot of blues, rock, and classical, because we, we, uh, uh, the song had all of the genre, all the musical genre that you ever needed on that particular one. Mm-hmm. So I would say Freedom. You know, now all the talk, of course, is about both sides of the sky. I just want to ask you this. I'm not surprised there are recordings that were never heard before, I imagine there are a lot of recordings that we still have yet to hear. Yes. What do you think of the track so far? Well, I did a lot of thinking about uh, this, and I went into my thoughts. And my thoughts were like, uh, my first impression was on listening to the CD, Both Sides of the Sky, Mm -hmm. Buried Treasure. Mm. Buried Treasure. That's what I first thought when I heard the CD upon its arrival. Uh, it is buried tre- treasure of a, a master, Jimi Hendrix, that has just been unearthed. We're going to listen to one right now. This one's called Manish Boy. Manish Boy. like I'm going to church, man. I love this. Amen. <laughs> I love this. Tell me about Manish Boy. Manish Boy is just one of those songs that Jimmy and his genius came up with. It's myself, Buddy and Jimmy. Buddy Miles mm-hmm. and Jimmy Hendrix on it. And we 
we were all about the same age. We came up uh, on the same kind of music, and we, 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 we fate had brought us all together. And uh, Jimmy was in, 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 a genius at putting together uh, songs and lyrics and musical uh, things like that. The Manic Joy Boy is just a, 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 a song he put together. And uh, it, 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 it was enjoyable to be able to work with him on all these things. Mr. Cox, I know you love playing on the road. Can you even imagine doing anything else all these years? No, that was my destiny. Mm-hmm. Everyone has a destiny. And I you know, tell the kids that uh, uh, you must follow your destiny. And once you find out where your, what your destiny is, grab on to it and hold on to it tight. I think a lot of people are running away from their destiny, trying to be something and do something that they're not really uh, set to do. So I think you have to get quiet and 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 lay back, and and and, and, and it, ultimately your destiny comes to you. And also this, but particularly this Manish Boy uh, song was, uh, I think it was the Muddy Waters song, and he redid. Mm. I think. Yeah, can you hear the blues in it? Yeah, the blues in it, but that's the way he did it. He did it his way. The day that we all that y'all lost Jimmy, I know that you can remember that like it was yesterday. But how did you, those few days after that, how did you all get through that? I was devastated. Totally devastated. That's all I can say on that. Billy Cox, it's been a pleasure. Um, I could talk to you for the rest of this hour, but I have another guest. And, you know, it's, it's just been a pleasure. You're an outstanding bass player. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for recalling the memories with Jimmy and, I already have the album, so I don't need to tell you what I think about it. All right, Ms. Scott, we appreciate you, and thank you for having us. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. <laughs> One of my favorite conversations. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder, you can revisit all of these conversations online at wabe.org. Our producers, as always, LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.